All right, you will say good morning. Good morning. Let us begin. Begin by thanking all of our sponsors for this morning share. To thank our Talmud Torah sponsor for the month of Shvat, Mrs. Salma Wolf, for dedicating all the Shuman Drushos this month. With immense gratitude for the refuel from Hashem and the merit of Rafushim for all of those in need in the schus of our brave soldiers and in the schus of the return of each of our hostages. Our week of learning sponsor, Ken and Dina Lieblich, in the merit of the safe return of their son, Aaron Daniel Ben Fromadina and his entire Pluga who are currently serving in Gaza. May Akadish Baruch Hu watch over them, allow them to be successful in their missions and return them to their families, Bishalom and Bekarov. And of course, we dedicate all of Masechah's Baba Kama. Le'ilui Nishmas. Master Sergeant Elio Michal Harush, Hashem Yikom Damo, we hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, his Nisham will have an aliyah and the family in a Chamarabos. With that, let us begin. Today's daf is Peiches 89, and we are picking up in Meir Hashem on Peiches Amud Beis. So we actually have a, a lot to do today. Um, so we left off in the middle of a really interesting Sogei Mahogasin of Yochanan and Reish Lakish. So specifically, with the following case. The case we were dealing with was the following situation. So here was the case that the son went ahead and sold property in the, during the lifetime of his father. So remember again, building on the case before it, a father, we'll call him Yaakov, made a gift to his son Reuven. And the gift went like this, right? This field is yours, from today, and after my death. So at this point again, so now the father went ahead and gave over the son the rights to the field. He gave him over the title to the field, but the father retains usage of the field until after his death. Then once he dies, effectively the, the gift or the, right, the, the transaction becomes retroactively valid to the, date that, uh, to the date that the father transferred it over to the son. So what's the Shiloh? So before we were talking about the idea that really neither party could fully sell it, right? So on one hand, the son has title, but he doesn't have usage. The father has usage, but he doesn't have title. So now we're dealing with the following situation. So now, in general, the halach is like this. If the father goes ahead and sells it, father goes ahead and sells it, the sale is valid in that the father could sell peros, right? If the son sells it, the sale is invalid. When does it become valid? When does it become valid? When the father dies. The, then the Gemara brought up a little bit of a wrinkle in the case. So let's say the same situation, same case. Right? This is to, this, this, I'm giving you this field. What happens? Son sells the field, but now what occurs? Son predeceases the father. Son predeceases the father. So the Shailin now is when the father ultimately dies, is the son's transaction valid or not? So just to kind of attach names over here, right? So Reuben says to his son, sorry, Yaakov says to his son Reuben, right, this field is yours from today until I die. Okay, so what happened, or, or when I die. So then what happens? So the son, Reuben goes ahead and sells the field to Shimon. To Shimon, now Reuben goes ahead and predeceases his father. So the Shimon now is when Yaakov ultimately dies, does the field go to Shimon or not? That's the machlokas. So again, so we'll say, so we ended off yesterday, we did the position of Rabbi Yochanan, right? Rabbi Yochanan said, ultimately again, the sale is not really a valid sale. What was Rabbi Yochanan's logic? Rabbi Yochanan held, Rabbi Yochanan holds 
Alma Kasavar, Kinyan Peros, Kikinyan Aguf. Rabbi Yochanan holds that he who has usage, he who has Peros, really is the owner. Really is the owner. And therefore, again, what Rabbi Yochanan essentially holds is that when Ruvain, the son, went ahead and sold the field, that was really an ineffective sale. That was an ineffective sale. The only way a sale like that could work is if Yaakov, the father, died, then Reuven inherits. Then again, Reuven has the ability to go ahead and sell it. But Lamaisa, during the father's lifetime, when the father has Kenyan Peros, Kenyan Peros is Kenyan Agof. He who has usage is essentially the owner. And therefore, Reuven really had no ability to transact with Shimon. Reuven's sale is really ineffective, coupled by the fact that Reuven predeceased his father. Nothing really to talk about. That's Rabbi Yochanan. As well, so we left off with Reb Shimon Lakish. It's about uh, uh, a lot. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22. About 25 lines up from the bottom. Says, Reish Lakish on the other hand says, Reish Lakish says, no, it works. It works that in this case, when again, Yaakov the father is giving over the field to his son Ruvain, from today and after my death, then Reuven goes ahead and sells the field to Shimon. Then Reuven predeceases his father, that upon the death of Yaakov the father, the field actually goes, the field actually goes to Shimon. So the Gemara says as follows, well. says it works. Why does it work? So it's like, when we said before that when the son, when the son goes ahead and sells the field, so the transaction, the purchaser, doesn't have anything until the father dies. But we see from here, when the father does die, right? When Yaakov does die, ultimately Shimon, the purchaser, does acquire the field. So it doesn't make a difference if the son predeceased the father, the Asuliyadei Dibin. Right, Veloshna Mesabe. I'm sorry, that's just the opposite. Veloshna Mesabe Mechaya Abdo Asule Adei Debein. Veloshna Mesabe Mechaya Abdo Lo Asule Adei Debein. The Kana Lokeach. So we'll say Rish Lakish says it really makes no difference whether or not son predeceases the father or father predeceases the son. At the end of the day, the transaction works. Why? Almo Kasavar because Rish Lakish holds Kinyan Peros. He holds that right of usage, ultimately, again, is not tantamount, is not the equivalent to ownership. And therefore, And ultimately, again, therefore, when the son, when the son, when Reuven goes ahead and sells the field, he effectively is selling his own field. And I will say, so let, let's just take a step back for a moment and just frame this again. So here's what we have. Right, let's just frame the case once more. Now we have both positions. Right? We have Yaakov the father. Yaakov father has a field. Yaakov father gives the field over to his son Reuven. But he gives it over to him in an interesting way. He says, This field is Yom, this field, sorry, this field is yours. Mehayom Ulaakramosi. From today and after my death. Now, what does a gift like that mean? Effectively, what does that mean? What that means is that Yaakov is giving over title but retaining usage, right? He's giving over title, but he's retaining payros. He's retaining payros, fine. So now what happens? So we'll say, so now, before we even get into the rest of the case, there's now a fundamental machlokas of Yochanan and Reish Lakish. What's the fundamental machlokas? Right now, who owns this field? 
Who, who is the owner of this field? Shabbi Yochanan would say, Rabbi Yochanan would say, that ultimately, again, the father is still the owner of the field. Why? Whoever has usage is the owner. Reish Lokish says, no. Right? It's about title. It's about title. And therefore, Kenyan Peros Latke, Kenyan Aguf, we say father has usage, but son is the actual owner. So we'll say, that is our Machlokes. It happens to be, the way the Machlokes is framed is how, in a case where now after this whole transaction occurred, so Ruvain the son goes ahead and sells the field to Shimon. Now, everyone agrees that the sale is not really going to be effective until when? Until when? Until Father Yaakov dies. Right until Father Yaakov dies, because Father Yaakov still has usage. So again, in a typical case, in a typical case where Father Yaakov dies, then the transaction will be valid. The wrinkle over here is what happens. The son, Ruvain, predeceased his father. So now the shaila is, when Yaakov, the father, dies, does the field go to Levi or, or Shai, Shimon or not? Shimon or not. So Yochanan will say, no, it doesn't. Why doesn't it? Because the sale was never good. Why was the sale never good? Kenyan Peres, Kenyan Aguf. Because ultimately, again, Reuben, his son, sold something that wasn't his. He sold the field that really belonged to his father. It went to his father. Reish Lakish will say, it absolutely works. Why? King and Peros loved King and Agov. At the end of the day, Ruve, sorry, Ruve and the son was really the owner. Therefore, he has the right to go ahead and sell it. Granted, the sale doesn't vest, so to speak, until Yaakov, the father, dies. But Lamaisa, the sale works. And therefore, upon the death of Father Yaakov, even though Ruve and the son already predeceased him, the field ultimately will go to Shimon. That's Ramachlokas. That's Ramachlokas. To which the Gemara says, "Va Anan." Now, both say, "Remember, how did we get into all of this? Right? How, how did we get here?" If you remember again, in yesterday's daf, on the end of Ahmed Aleph, we had the interesting case of the father of Rav Shmuel, right, who got remarried to a man by the name of Rabbi Abba. During her marriage, what did she do? She gave her property. She gave her property to her son, to her son Rav Shmuel. So now both say upon her death, upon her death, her son was confirming that he indeed was the owner of the property and that the husband, Rabbi Abba, didn't go ahead and inherit her. So essentially now, this case is a parallel case. Why? Because halacha lamaisa, a husband during his wife's lifetime has peros, has usage. So essentially what ended up happening was the father, sorry, the mother of Rav Shmuel gave away property, gifted property to another person that her husband had usage of. So the shayla is, is such a conveyance effective or not? What does that depend on? What does that depend on? This same machlokes, Rabbi Yochanan Do we say, Kenyan peros kekenyan aguf or not? So do you say like Rabbi Yochanan, that again, if you hold kenyan peros kekenyan aguf, that means the husband, Rabbi Abba, was the owner. If the husband of Abba was the owner, then his wife had absolutely no right to convey the property to her son. That's Rabbi Yochanan. If on the other hand, the Jehovah King and Peros, Latka King and Aguf, usage is not ownership. She had ownership. She had every right to give it over to her son. So that's what I will say. So that, that's, that's where all of this, that's where all of this is coming up. So remember again, Rabbi Yirmiya, going back to that previous case, Rabbi Yirmiya was the one who confirmed that Halacha the son 
Rav Shmuel had every right to retain that property. So we'll say, so now let's bring this full circle. Va'anon, so we'll say, so now va'anon hashta, ben Rabbi Yirmiya bar Abba, ben Rabbi Yehuda bar Rabbi Shimon, I'm sorry, ben Rabbi Yehuda, and we'll say we hold that both Rabbi Yirmiya and Rabbi Yehuda, now remember again, Rabbi Yirmiya was the one who confirmed that the son of Shmuel was the rightful owner of the property. Rabbi Yehuda disagreed. Rabbi Yehuda disagreed. So the Gemara said, both of us now, we hold that both quoted to Rabbi Yirmiya and both quoted to Rabbi Yehuda, ben Lakish Both of them hold like Reish Lakish. And what does Reish Lakish hold? Kenyan Peros, Lav Kenyan Aguf. That's how they both hold. The Ka'am Rabbi Yirmiya Bar Abba, Rabbi says as follows. If you hold the king in Peros, right, that Peros is like ownership. If that's the case, that, that the father died, but the son predeceased the father. So why does the purchaser, and as we call him Shimon, why does Shimon have any rights in this property? After all, Ultimately, again, when the son Ruven sold property, he sold property that didn't really belong to him. Rather, what you have to say is the fact that the transaction works, and upon the death of the father Yaakov, ultimately, purchaser does have rights in the property, does own the property. Now, what does that show you? That Kinyan Peros Lafke Kinyan Aguf, usage is not tantamount to ownership. Therefore, again, son Ruvain really had rights over the property, and therefore the sale to Shimon was an effective sale. To which the one says, Hajj the Kamedra Yehuda. So they brought this back to Yehuda. Amr Lahu, Hachi Amr Shmuel. Both say first wide line. He said as follows. He said, Shmuel said as follows. Zu ena domo Mishnah Senu. These cases are not comparable. Why not? My time, Amr Rav Yosef. So the Gemara says, Bishlam itani ipcha. Had you written the opposite case, a case of where a son wrote his fa- property to his father. So let's say you have the reverse case, right? Ruvain says to his father, this is your field. Then you could extrapolate that a king in Paris is not a king in Agof. But we'll say, the case of the father to the son is a different kind of case. Why is it a different kind of case? Because we'll say, anyway, Ruvain stands to go ahead and inherit this field, right? If the father does nothing, Ruvain is going to inherit. So ultimately, again, you can't go ahead and extrapolate Kinyan Aperes Lavki Kinyan Aguf or Kinyan Aguf. Only Abaye Abaye says, one second. Atu bra yaris abba, abba lo yaris bra. But that's not necessarily true. The same way that a son inherits a father, Technically speaking, a father could inherit a son if there are no other inheritors. Rather, I will say, could very well be that what's happening over here is why would Ruvain write his property over to his father? Perhaps because Ruvain does not want his own children to inherit. Well, if that's the case, but you could have the same type of situation where Yaakov, the father, is writing the property over to Ruvain, his son. Why? Because he doesn't want the other children to inherit. So rather, why can you say that this case of where Yaakov, the father, is conveying ownership over to the property to his sons, why is it not comparable to our Mishnah? 
because of the takana of Usha, we'll say, ah, oh. so we'll say, so now, what we are suggesting over here, we were, so we'll remember again, we were trying to compare the case of the mother of Rav Shmuel, who went ahead and conveyed her property to her son during her marriage to Rabbi Abba. We tried to compare that to this case over here of what? Of where Father Yaakov conveyed ownership to a field to his son Ruvain, mehayom ula'achar mosi, and then halacha lemaisa, during the father's lifetime, Ruvain sold it to Shimon. We were trying to compare those two cases, right? And we were trying to say that just like there's a machlokis of Yochanan and Reish Lakish, in the case of where Ruvain, the son, sells it to another party, to Shimon, during the lifetime of his father, what's the machlokis there? King in Peros, King in Agof, or Lavke King in Agof. So, so too, we're going to compare that same case to the case of the mother of Rav Shmuel. Because what did the mother of Shmuel do? Well, say, what did she do? She took property. Let's, let's play this out. She took property. Who owns that property? Who owns that property? She owns the property. She owns the property. But yet her husband, her husband, Rabbi Abba, has Peros. So she took property that her husband has Peros, but that she owns title. And she gave it to someone else, to another party. In this case, the other party was her son. Her son. So I say, so what was our Shaila? Does that work or not? So Bipashtos, what does that depend on? Seemingly the Machlokes, Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish. Is King and Peros King in Aguf or not? Does usage represent ownership? So if you hold, if you are like Rabbi Yochanan, that, that usage represents ownership, King and Peros King in Aguf, that means the husband, Rabbi Abba, is really the owner of the property. If he's really the owner of his property, then his wife, the mother of Rav Shmuel, has no right to give it over to her son. But if you hold, like Rish Lakish, that Kenyan Peros Lavke Kenyan Agof, that usage is not tantamount to ownership, therefore what? Therefore, again, mother of Rav Shmuel, wife of Rabbi Abba, she owns the property. She owns it. Okay, her husband has usage of it. I understand that. But usage is not ownership. She's the owner, and therefore she has the right to convey it over to her son. So that's what we're trying to equate it to. To which the Gemara says, can't equate it. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. The marriage case, the marriage case of where the woman brings in property and husband has usage is subject to a totally different halacha. Which halacha bosai? Takanas usha. Now what is takanas usha? In Usha, they instituted the following halacha. That if a woman, during the course of her marriage, went ahead and sold Nechse Molog. Now, remember again, what's Nechse Molog? Nechse Molog, back to our Ksuvis days. Nechse Molog is property the woman brings into a marriage that she retains title, but husband has usage. So, so in, ta- in Usha, they instituted the following halacha, that if a woman goes ahead, and I will say, by the way, whatever appreciates, or whatever appreciation or depreciation, that ultimately, again, is, is borne by the woman, by the wife, right? In other words, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, she retains title, husband just has usage. So now watch this. So now in Usha, they made the following takana, that if halacha lamaisa, during the course of a marriage, a woman went ahead and sold her nechseimolog, and now she predeceases her husband. Her husband has the right to go ahead and extract that nechseimolog from any purchasers upon her death. That was takonas usha. 
This is one of the takanas in it. Look at Rashi. Rashi says, Bu'usha eskinu, Tiafagavda ba'amalafka kingina guftami. Now watch this, I will say, what is this takana predicated on? This takana predicated on the fact that normally we hold like Rish Lakish. Namely, Kinyan peros lav kinyan aguf. Usage is not tantamount to ownership. Nevertheless, Rashi says, "Pal benichse ishto al muha rabbanon l'shibude mishum eva v'havi kilokeach rishon." It will say, in order to prevent animosity in a marriage. Now, what does it mean animosity? It's not. It's not a good thing if a wife starts selling off her nichse malug over the course of the marriage. Why? Because again, remember, her husband has an obligation for support of his wife. And one of the ways that Chazal kind of offset that expense of support is by giving him rights of usage over her property. If she starts selling off the property, it's just, it's not good. It's not good. It's not good. It creates marital animosity. How did Chazal go ahead and address that animosity? How did they address it? Ultimately, by saying upon her death, essentially husband becomes like a first position purchaser, or a first position creditor, and therefore has the right to extract that from anyone who bought it. Sefer said, the Gemara says, we're dealing, so again, even if you hold like Reish Lakish, that Kenyan peros lavke Kenyan aguf, then normally we say usage is not ownership. Usage is not ownership. And therefore, really, a husband is not an owner in his wife's nechse malog. In takusha, they made a takana that he is like the owner. He is like the owner. So during her lifetime, she has, she has title, but upon her death, he effectively becomes like the owner of that property and has the ability to go ahead and extract it from any purchasers. Incredible, incredible. Therefore, I will say it turns out that the case of the mother of Rav Shmuel, the wife of Rabbi Abba, is just governed by a totally different aloha. That's all. It's just, we're trying to compare it to the Mahogs of Yochanan Eishlakshin. It turns out it's not comparable. It's just a different case. I'm Rabbi Dibaravin. Af Ananamitan, and we learn this as well. So an interesting case, Rabbi say, witnesses show up and they testify. We testified that Ruvain was married to Rachel and that Ruvain divorced Rachel and paid her her ksuba, top of paytes. But ultimately, again, but, right, but, but we see that Allah they're living together. So what's Allah? And now it turns out that the Edom are Edom Zolmans. The Edom lied. Edom lied. What's Allah? What's actually interesting? Well, so now remember again, whenever it comes to Edom Zoman, what's talked about Edom Zoman? Reciprocal punishment. So the Shaila is, what do they have to pay in this case? Right? What do they pay? So the Gemara says, we don't make them pay the entire value of the Ksuva. Ella Tovas Hanas Ksuvasa. Rather, we make them pay what we call Tovas Hana. Tovas Hana. And I both say, by the look at Rashi just a moment. Farei Tachtov. Now watch this. So now the Gemara is like this. We don't make them pay the entire Ksuva. Rather, what do they have to pay? Tovas Hanag Ksuvasa. So I was asked the Gemara, what, what is Tovas Ezu Tovas Ksuvasa. What does that mean, Tovas Omdin, Kama Adam Rosalitim Biksuvasa Shalzu, Shem Nisarmula Onis Garsha, Vim Mesa Yirashana Baila. So let's listen to this. Essentially, Tovas means like the, the technical term part of it, we'll call it like the future rights to a Ksuva. Now, just to illustrate this in a totally different case. 
a woman could, could te- technically te- sell the future right of her ksuba. Now, how does that future right look? It looks like this, right? So again, Ruben's married to Rachel. Rachel sells her ksuba. She sells her ksuba to Shimon. Now, we'll say now, what, what, is that, what does that future right represent? It represents essentially the following scenario. If I get divorced, right, Rachel gets divorced, or her husband dies, the ksuba will be worth, let's call it, 200 zuz. But there's also the possibility that what? Right? What's the possibility that what? That she predeceases her husband. If she predeceases her husband, what's the ksuba worth? Zero. Zero. So essentially, you're selling a future. You're selling a future, right? The future, right? So obviously, what that would mean is, the only way you're selling that is how? Is how? At a discount, right? No, no, no one is paying. No one is paying face value for that ksuba. At most, you're going to go ahead and sell it at a discount. Now, if at the end of the day, you don't hold off Takanas Usha, then ultimately, again, Now, here's what's interesting. The fact that we say that there is the possibility that the wife will die and the husband inherits her. But one second, why don't we say that if a wife sells her ksuva, her ksuva sold? What do you see from here? What do you see from here? You see from here that Allah, that when a woman dies, her husband inherits all of her property, which shows you that any sale she makes during her lifetime is not a bona fide sale. Why is it not a bona fide sale? Must mean what? Takanas Usha. So as Takanas Usha comes along and says that halacha whatever she sells, whatever property she sells over the course of the marriage, upon her death, her husband has the ability to extract those properties from any purchasers. That's Takanos Usha. Incredible. That's Takanos Usha. I'm Rabbi, if I said one second. I'll say one second. What does Takanos Usha, Usha cover? So Bepashtos, it only covers Nechsei Mulug. It doesn't cover Nechsei Tzom Barzal. So say, remember again, we've had this before. What's there saying Nechsei Tzom Barzal? Nechsei Mulug, a wife brings into the marriage. Essentially, she retains title. Husband has complete ownership over it, uh, usage over it. Now, we'll say, now, what happens in the event of death or divorce with Nechse Malog? Whatever's left, she takes with her, right? If, if this, and, and, and if the property is all used up, it's all used up, nothing more to talk about. Nechse Tzombarzo is property that a woman brings into, brings into the marriage. The property is assessed. And what happens? Husband guarantees the value of that property. So should there be divorce or death of the husband, what happens? Husband or his estate pays that value. That value is locked in. So look at Rashi. Remember again, she's bringing in that property. That property is assessed. They go and also Biksuvasa. And ultimately, the value of that property is written into the Ksuva. And the chassan goes ahead and has complete the responsibility. And if it diminishes, he bears the depreciation. If it appreciates, he gets the appreciation. And therefore, Gemara says, So now watch this. So now the Gemara says, by the way, Takanas Usha is really only going to cover what? Only going to cover Nechsim. Look, because Nechsim Barzel those remain the property of the woman even after death or divorce. Husband is guaranteeing that value. Amrabaye told us, so again, therefore, both said the Gemara just points out to her, just as an aside, that Allah Chalamaisa, Allah Chalamaisa, Takanas Usha 
really only applies, really only applies ultimately again to Nixay Malog, doesn't apply to Nixay Tsumbazel. So we'll say, so now that we're about to veer off on a different topic, so let's just point out what we have over here. So we'll say, so what, what comes out over here is something very interesting, which is that Halach Alamaisa, Halach Alamaisa, two things. So number one, it turns out that in the din, in the din or in the case of where the mother of Rav Shmuel, ended up giving him marital property, giving him nixemolog. So we'll say, and then she dies. It turns out that what? Doesn't really work. Doesn't really work. That her husband, Rabbi Abba, would absolutely have the right to go ahead and extract it. Why? Because we'll say, that's Takana Susha. That's Takana Susha. And Takana Susha says, any nixemolog that a woman sells over the course of her marriage, upon her death, husband has the right to extract it ultimately from purchasers. So that, that, that's that case. Just... As an aside, the Gemara introduces us to the riveting machlokes, ultimately Yochan Reish Lakish, which is Kenyan Peros, Kenyan Aguf, or Lati Kenyan Aguf. They will say, is usage considered to be ownership or not? That's machlokes of Yochanan and Reish Lakish. We don't have to deal with halacha the mice of that right now, as we're still going to see that a little bit more in the future. Good. So let's go back there. Amra Bai Bai says, Tovas Hana, Holva Asaliya Dan, Neyma Buhu Milsa. So we'll say, Srabai says, by the way, now that we brought up this concept of Tovas Hana, let's talk about it a little bit. So we'll say, what's the case of Tovas Hana? Tovas Hana means the ability to sell a future. A woman sells her ksuva. A woman sells her ksuva. What is she selling? She's selling the future right to collect her ksuva, which is based on the fact that her husband divorces or predeceases her. But if she predeceases her husband, then what? Then obviously there's no value. So then Abayi says, let's talk about this a little bit. So the Gemara says, So we'll say, so listen to this. Abayi says, let's play this out. Right? Reuben's married to Rachel. Reuben's married to Rachel. Rachel decides to sell the future right to her ksuba. So we'll say, I don't know, let's say, how much is that worth? Let's say it's worth 100 zuz. So she goes over, right? She, she strikes a deal with Levi, and she sells it for 100 zuz. So we'll say, so now what's the shayla? What's the shayla? Who gets to keep that hundred zos? Who gets to keep the hundred zos? So the Gemara says, so Abayi says, it's Rachel's. She gets to keep it. So because if you think that the money goes to the husband, so again, going back to the previous case, right, where Edom testified that she was divorced and received her ksuva, right? But in fact, they were Edom Zomamin, then we really shouldn't pay, we really shouldn't go out and punish the Edom at all, because the Edom could say to Rachel, what did we really cause you to lose? After all, again, even had you sold your ksuva for the tovas hana value, you wouldn't have gotten it. The husband would have received that value from you. Some says no, because at the end of the day, even if the husband technically would go ahead and get the proceeds, it still benefits the woman. Why? Because when there's more money in the household, ultimately the woman benefits from it, even if she's not the one who's the owner of the money. Interestingly enough, Rav says that belongs to the woman. So meaning, when a woman sells the future right to her ksuva, any money that comes in as a result of that sale belongs to Rachel the wife. Belongs to Rachel the wife. Not only that, Rav said, listen, it's not only that. If she takes that money and she purchases, let's say, real estate with that money, the husband does not get payros from that land. He doesn't get payros. 
Rashi says over vein about Ochal Peros. Why this is actually very interesting. Lormin and Yikach ban Karka for Ochal Peros. Chazan doesn't get Peros from that. My time. What's the reason? Peros takinu le Rabbanon. Sorry, Peros takinu le Rabbanon. Peros de Peros lot takinu le Rabbanon. Why? Because what's it? What does the husband get? Husband gets Peros, right? Peros of her property. What doesn't he get? He doesn't get Peros of Peros. So let's say if you think about it over here, right? If she goes in and she sells the future to her ksuba, right? That money is Peros. If now, she, well, technically it's Peros. If she now invests that in land, that's Peros of Peros. He doesn't get that. He doesn't get that. That type of, in other words, I was saying, it's another way of saying, it's another way of saying that. What is he entitled to? He's entitled to usage of property she brings into the marriage. But halochalamaisa, if she sells a right that is due to her, I hear ksuva, she sells a future right to her ksuva, and whatever, whatever. So for, number one, she gets to keep the proceeds of that sale. Number two, whatever she does with it is hers and hers alone. He doesn't get payros of that. Fascinating. So let's say we learned the following. So remember again, we saw in our Mishnah that if one goes ahead and injures an Eved and an Isha, they're always at a disadvantage. Why? Because because it was like, if you injure an Eved or an Isha, you're Chayiv. But yet, the Him Shechavlu Ba'achirin Pater. Peturin. I will say, but if an Eved or an Isha injures someone else, what's the Allah? They're Peturin. I will say, remember again, Mishnah, why are they Peturin? Why are they Peturin? Because the assumption is, they have no money. Right? They have no assets. Usha. I will say, but one second. If you don't hold of Takonas Usha, and remember again, I will say, what does Takonas Usha say? Takonas Usha says, that whatever property a woman sells, whatever niximilog a woman sells over the course of her marriage, what's talacha? What's talacha? When she dies, the husband has the right to collect that property. Which I will say, Pashas, what does that effectively do? What does that effectively do? That effectively shuts down her ability to sell property. Why? Because unless you're selling it at a very, very deep discount, no one's buying that property. It doesn't make any sense to buy that property because she could die tomorrow and it turns out you sold money, you spent money on a field and now again, the husband is going to come and take it from you. So I will say, now watch this. So therefore, again, if you hold off Takana Susha, it makes a lot of sense that we say that a woman essentially doesn't have money to go ahead and pay, pay, pay for damages. However, watch this. But if you don't hold off Takana Susha, then I will say, Then I will say, she does have the ability to pay for damages. How does she have the ability to pay for damages? Let her sell off her nixim alone. Again, I will say, this is if you don't hold off Takana Susha, let her sell off her nixim alone. She now has money and she can pay off her damages. Using that same logic, even if you hold of Takana Susha, and therefore, So I'll say, I don't understand. There's still a way for her to make money. How could she go to make money? She could sell off Nechseim Ulog, Betovas Hana. In other words, you could, sell, you could still sell it, right? But how do you sell it? You're selling the future. Selling the future. She could say, listen, right? She could take, take her Nechseim Ulog, Sell it to Shimon. I say, Shimon, look at it. Here's the deal. I'm selling you my next single. Obviously, at a discount. Obviously, a discount. Because one of two things is going to happen. I'm going to die. In which case, if I die, my husband's going to come and collect this property. Right? Or, what's the other possibility? My husband dies. My husband dies. And if my husband predeceases me, then my property becomes mine. So, in other words, 
I would say, even if you hold of Takana's Usha, there is still a way for her to sell property and ultimately, again, re- essentially earn some money. Now, why do I want her to earn some money? Because this is she could pay off her damages. Ella, the less law. Rather, both say, the Mishnah's case, once you're talking about where she doesn't have any nixim log. Okay, she doesn't have property. So because she doesn't have property, how can I be the last law? So she doesn't have any property. Because she doesn't have any property, there's nothing to sell. Because there's nothing to sell, ultimately, again, there's no money to be earned. And therefore, again, there's no way to pay off damages. Okay. I says, the Gemara of Itizabin, Ksuvasa, Betovasa, Navatitinle. But they're all saying that's not true. Every woman has an asset, right? What's her asset? Her Ksuva. So why don't we say that when a woman injures someone, right? Rachel's married to Ruvain, and Rachel, and Rachel injures, Rachel injures Shimon. So the Mishnah said, ah, Rachel, Rachel doesn't have to pay anything now because she doesn't have any money. Well, Mishnah doesn't have any money. She has a ksuva. Let her sell, let her sell the future right to her ksuva and use the proceeds of that sale to pay off damages to Shimon. Why, why can't, granted, I will say, again, remember, whenever you sell a ksuva, it's always going to be what? Sold at a discount. But still, she could, she could earn something from that sale. Let her use the proceeds of that sale to go out and pay Shimon for damages. Ha money, Rabbi Meir, he. So I'll say, who is the being? Does this reflect? It reflects Rabbi Meir of Da'amar. Asr lo li adam shiyashes ishto afidu sha'achas below ksuva. So I'll say, ultimately, again, it's Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir holds that a man is not permitted to live with his wife without a ksuva. So therefore, I'll say, it turns out that really a woman can't sell her ksuva because if she sells her ksuva, her husband cannot live with her. Now, what's the logic of that? Because ultimately, again, remember, I will say, this is for the woman's benefit. We don't want there to be a marriage without a ksuva. Why? Because I will say, a ksuva ultimately, again, is one of the things that makes the husband think twice about divorcing his wife. Otherwise, again, he can be very flippant in divorcing of his wife because Lamaise, again, it's not going to cost him. Because there is a ksuva, ksuva, again, I will say, allows or prevents him from making any rash decisions. So therefore, Rabbi Meir is the opinion that holds that if a woman doesn't have a ksuva, then ultimately, again, the couple cannot live together. So therefore, again, effectively, according to Rabbi Meir, a woman really can't sell her ksuva. She can't sell her ksuva because otherwise, again, she can't live with her husband, to which the Gemara says... So the Gemara says, uh, but in that case, but in this case, it still applies. Why? Rabbi Gemara says, that's fine. That's fine. In other words, we'll say, even if Rachel sold her ksuva, Rabbi Meir's, Rabbi Meir's issue is still addressed. Why? Because in the event that Reuven were to divorce Rachel, what would happen? He would have to pay her ksuva because now the purchaser would come to collect the ksuva. In other words, so, so the, the, the logic is still intact, right? Rabbi Meir says, you can't live with, let's kind of bring this together. We're trying to figure out what the Mishnah says, that if, if Rachel, the wife, injures Shimon, another guy, that interaction is negative. Why? Because Shimon can't collect anything from Rachel. To which the says, why not? Just have her sell her ksuva. The future rights her ksuva. Use the proceeds of that sale to sell off damages. But says, no, no, no. Because it's right to Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir says, you can't live with your wife without a ksuva. But she has a ksuva. She just sold it. And the truth is, the ksuba as the deterrent to divorce still applies. Why? Because in the event that he divorces her, while it's true that he won't have to pay her the money, but he will have to what? He will have to pay Shimon. So the, the, the financial deterrent to divorce is still intact. So why not go ahead and allow her to sell off the future right to the ksuba, use the proceeds to pay off damages? To which the Gemara says, Ella, 
Tova sana milinenu. We'll say first five line on the bottom. Umili lo mishtabdi. So this is interesting. Rather, the Gemara answers. Tova sana, tova sana is just a, it's words. And words ultimately, again, don't create a shibud. To which the Gemara says, in other words, words what is she going to do? She's going to give over, she's going to go ahead and give over the future rights of her ksuba to the damaged party. So what? So what? Those are words, right? And words don't create an actual financial, financial reality. Gemara says, I don't understand. Allah malo, mili dimizdabni bidinari ninu. She will say, but it's not just words. It's not just words. It's a right. It's an entitlement. And she does have the ability to sell that right. And that right has a financial value. In other words, we will say, she could sell that ksuva. Granted, again, it's a future. It's a future. But she could sell it now and there is money to be realized now from that sale. Elamishum de Shmuel. Rather, I will say, must reflect the view of Shmuel. Damar Shmuel. Hamochesh tarchov lechavero. If someone goes in and sells a document of indebtedness to their friend, v'chazar umachlo machol. And he then turns around and forgives it. It's machol. Vafilu yoresh machol. So we'll say, now, now listen to this. We'll say, so just to illustrate this, if I lend money to Ruvain, right? So Ruvain owes me money. I take the debt, I sell it to Shimon. So I sold, I sold, I sold the debt to Shimon. Right? So now Shimon has right of collection. Watch those. I turn around and I forgive the debt to Ruvain, right? I forgive the debt to Ruvain. So obviously not, not, not a correct thing to do, but if you did it, it works. It works. So therefore, in this case over here, in this case over here, So we'll say, so now, again, here's what's interesting about this. Therefore, the Gemara suggests, here's the problem. What's the problem over here? If Rachel sells the future right of her ksuva, so what could she technically do? So what could she do after the fact? She could be machal, right? She could be machal the ksuva. She could, remember again, the ksuva is a debt. Anything that's owed to you could always be mochel. So we have to be concerned over that if she sells the future right to the husband, she could always turn around to be mochel. To which the Gemara says, fine, still understand. Let her sell it. And as we'll say, remember, the Mishnah says that when a married woman injures someone, it's really the, the injured party is at a disadvantage because there is no money to be collected. To which the Gemara is just trying to show that's not true. There is money to be collected. She has the ability to sell her ksuva. And that has a value. I, but she could sell it and then forgive it. Fine. So let's deal with that then. Let's let's deal with that then. But I will say, but at the end of the day, don't say that she has no ability to pay off anything. She does. She does. So if she ends up forgiving the ksuba, let's deal with that when it happens. To which the Gemara says, Amri, to which the Gemara Sarabos say, you know what? It's almost guaranteed that she's going to be mochal the ksuba in this case. In this kind of case, and I will say, now again, in general, a woman's not mochal on a ksuba, she's not mochalas. But Allah is in this kind of case, where she sold the ksuba to another party, the Gemara seems to feel it's almost a certainty that she is going to forgive the ksuba. So to create a transaction like this, where there's a sale of ksuba to another party, Right? And it's almost guaranteed that she's going to be mochal, this debt to her husband. It doesn't even make sense to me. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's wrong to even allow for such a transaction like this to occur. So why not do the following? See, up until now, the way we've been floating the idea is 
right? Rachel's married to Ruvain. She injures Shimon. So we're saying, Rachel, go sell your ksuba to Levi, take the proceeds of that sale, and pay off and pay off Shimon. The Gemara says, why don't you structure it differently? Let her, let her, watch this, let her, quote unquote, sell the ksuba to Shimon, the injured party. But obviously, what's going to happen over here? What's going to happen? There doesn't need to be an exchange of money. Rather, what she does is she'll essentially, quote unquote, sell the ksuba to Shimon, the injured party, for an amount, for an amount commensurate with the damages. So essentially, what's going to happen over here is Shimon, the injured party, gets the rights to the ksuba. But again, no money has changed hands. No money has changed hands. But Shimon gets that right as a form of payment. So the beauty of that is, the beauty of that is, essentially, Shimon gets something. Shimon gets something. Again, in lieu of damages. So Let Rachel, quote unquote, sell. I'm using quote unquote, sell because there's no exchange of money. Let her sell the ksuva, ultimately, again, to Shimon, the injured party, as a form of compensation for damages. Amadez, di'i machla legabe bal lo kamaf sedina. So let's say, what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst case scenario that happens over here? Worst case scenario is if she ends up forgiving the ksuva, fine. Shimon's no worse off than he was before, right? In other words, he wasn't getting paid money from her for damages anyway. So now at least he has the potential for the future collection of the ksuva. If she ends up forgiving it, she ends up forgiving it. But if she doesn't end up forgiving it, at least he has a future right of compensation. So I'll say, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, he's not getting paid now regardless, right? He's not getting any money. So if he's not getting any money, at least he has the potential for collection from the future ksuva. So, so, so let's say, no, the reason we don't like this is because, once again, it's almost positive, almost for sure, that she is going to be mochal this ksuva. So because she's going to be mochal this ksuva, this essentially becomes almost like a fictional transaction. And we don't really want to set up a fictional transaction because you're going to cause now Shimon, the, the damaged party, to have to go to Beisdin to try to collect on something that's not really going to be collectible. Okay. But that which we learned, So we'll listen to this case. What happens if Rachel injured her husband? Right? Rachel injured her husband, Ruben. Ultimately, again, she doesn't lose her ksuva. She doesn't lose her ksuva. So the Gemara says, I understand, second, If a woman injures her husband, I will say, oh, so now I have a very good solution. What's the solution? Let her give her husband the future right of her ksuva. What I both say, because in this case, everyone should agree it could work. Why? Both say the only thing preventing us from using ksuva, future ksuva, or future right, is the fear of what? Being mochel the ksuva to her husband. In this case, let her be mochel. Right? That's fine. Because halacha again, whether she's not mochel or she is mochel, husband is going to benefit by not having to pay the ksuva to his wife. And that's ultimately a form of repayment. To which the Gemara says, so the Gemara says, Havadar bimeirhi. Once again, I've said this reflects the view of Rabbi Meir. What does Rabbi Meir say? The Amar, Asra li Adam sheyashes ishta filu sha'achas below ksuva. And I've said, ah, so here we run into this problem, right? If a wife gives her husband her ksuva, 
essentially as the form of repayment for damages, right? Future right to that ksuva, then we'll say, that's a problem. Why? Because now effectively, that couple is living without a ksuva. Living without a ksuva. And Rabbi Meir says that a couple can't live without a ksuva. Why not? Ultimately, because again, without a ksuva, there's no financial deterrent to divorce, and he could easily, flippantly, go ahead and divorce her. To which the Gemara says, and we'll say, in this case over here, he could divorce her. Because if he divorces her, again, quote-unquote, he has the ability to collect her ksuva, ultimately as a form of repayment for damages. To which the Gemara says, So we'll say, so what's going on over here? To which the Gemara says, no, no, maybe the case where we'll say is where she has a very large ksuva. So we'll say, so for example, let's say, for argument's sake, her ksuva is $100,000. But the amount of damages that she owes him is uh, $5,000. So I will say, so therefore, again, there's much more for him to lose than for him to gain by divorcing her. He's not going to divorce her, right? He's not going to divorce her in order to collect a relatively small amount of the ksuva when he's going to have to end up paying a much larger amount for a divorce settlement. So I'll say, but if we're talking about a case where her ksuva is larger than what we'll call the basic biblical ksuva, nukma aksuvasa daraisa. So I'll say, let's go ahead and therefore establish the amount that she owes based on the ksuva daraisa. So establish halacha that particular amount, and therefore v'idach tizabena nehila bechavle. Then I will say, it's actually very interesting. Then halacha lamaisa go ahead and establish the ksuva amount, right? The ksuva daraisa amount as the amount that she owes him and let her sell the remainder. Now, there's also what the Gemara is now suggesting is something very interesting over here about maybe the ability to kind of split the ksuva between the ikr ksuva and a tosefes ksuva and let the ikr ksuva remain intact and go ahead and sell the future right to the tosefes. Kigon, the loan of fisha ksuvasa and ksuvasa daraisa. So I'll say, again, the Gemara now reverts back and says, no, 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 what's the case? The case ultimately, again, is where her ksuva is not really much more than the ksuva daraisa. I'll say, for example, we're talking about over here where, let's say, the damages is a relatively minimal amount of four zuzim. That ultimately, I'll say, because of a relatively small amount of damages, the husband is not going to go ahead and cause himself literally to lose or to have to pay a much larger amount of the ksuba. Right? Ultimately, again, the same way. Right? Ultimately, I will say the Gemara says the same way that that she should not sell the ksuba while she's still living under him. So too, again, she should not go ahead and cause the ksuba to be lost. I, but sometimes we both said there is a case where ultimately the ksuva could be lost. Where is that? Ultimately, we say, what case would that be? That would be the case where the ksuva itself is worth more than a basic ksuva daraisa. Our Rava, Rava said, Okay, say, so now, there's a lot being thrown at us today, right? So, we'll say, so here we go. What's the case over here? The case over here 
ultimately, again, the case over here is where Ksuvas Binim Dechrin. I will say a word about this very quickly. I know we'll have to we'll have to stop over here for today. We'll pick up. Actually, we'll pick up with this Rabbi today. Ksuvas Binim Dechrin. But very quickly, we'll say what's Ksuvas Binim Dechrin. Ksuvas Binim Dechrin is the ability, ultimately, again, for a woman to say, my Ksuva will always be inherited by my sons and will not be part of any formal property distribution. So we'll say, we'll pick up Amir Hashem with this statement of Rava, but I will say, just fascinatingly enough, what we're trying to figure out over here, I will say is, remember now, we've gone kind of from Takanas Usha to Kenyan Peros, to Kenyan Aguf, to Kenyan Aguf, and now I will say, focusing on the very interesting particular detail over here about the Mishnah telling me that if a married woman injures someone, Really, piggy asan ra. The injured party is at a disadvantage because halacha lamaisa. Because halacha lamaisa, she has nothing to pay back with. We're just trying to figure out is why is that so? At the end of the day, there is a ksuva, and there is a future right to that ksuva. Why doesn't that represent the value ultimately again that could be used for repayment? Now, obviously, I've said the concern is if it's to someone else, she could be mochel ksuva. But the husband himself, it should work again. We'll resolve this in Mirat Hashem tomorrow. Shkoyach.